Welcome to Trivial Knowledge, a little bit about a whole lot. My name is Stephanie and I'm excited to bring to you this next episode of Trivial Knowledge. Today, we will learn about a game that originated in Nepal and also discuss the science of crystallography. But before we start, here's a little bit of background for those who are listening for the first time. Each podcast episode brings you a weekly dose of knowledge from five different topics drawn from four broad categories. And to add to the fun, one topic will be acquired from a random Wikipedia page. With such an extensive range of topics, there's going to be something here for everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now let's dive into episode 23, From Bogchal to Crystallography. Social Sciences Today, our journey starts in the science of psychology. Specifically, we are going to learn about Lawrence Kohlberg's stages of moral development and the controversy over how these stages were established. Lawrence Kohlberg was born in 1927, growing up in Bronxville, New York, before attending Andover Academy, a private high school situated in Massachusetts. After taking a brief break from his schooling between high school and college to work on a freighter carrying refugees between Europe and Israel, he returned to the United States to enroll at the University of Chicago in 1948. He did so well on his entrance exams, he only needed one year in college to obtain all the credits required to obtain a bachelor degree. After graduating with his bachelor's, he went on to pursue advanced studies in the field of psychology with his doctoral dissertation featuring the start of his work in moral development. Kohlberg's theory started out by expanding on the early work of a cognitive theorist, John Piaget, from 1932. To establish his stages of moral development, Kohlberg initially interviewed 72 young boys that were 10, 13, and 16 years old from privileged white families in Chicago. The boys were all given a series of moral dilemmas and then asked questions with the goal to determine the boys' reasoning behind each example. Probably the most famous dilemma he created was called Heinz Dilemma. The Heinz Dilemma centers on a man named Heinz needing to obtain a life-saving drug for his wife, but the chemist who invented the drug is charging an exorbitant amount of money, 10 times the cost to make the drug. Heinz could not afford this price, and he couldn't raise enough money from family and friends either. The chemist refused to give Heinz the drug for a lower price, so Heinz broke into the chemist's office one night and stole the drug to save his wife's life. A series of questions were then asked of the boys, such as, should Heinz have stolen the drug? Would it change anything if Heinz didn't love his wife? Or should the police arrest the chemist for murder if the woman died? Using information from these answers, along with the answers to other dilemmas, Kohlberg put together his six stages of moral development, which he published in 1958. The six stages are divided into three levels, with two stages per level. Level 1 is known as the pre-conventional level and includes stages 1 and 2. This level houses people whose morality is externally controlled, typically children 9 years old and younger. 
Stage 1, the obedience and punishment orientation, is where a child wants to obey the rules to avoid punishment. Thus, an action is wrong if it results in punishment. Stage 2 is instrumental orientation, or the what's in it for me stage, where the correct behavior is whatever is in the individual's best interests, such as quid pro quo, you help me, I help you. If you have a child in this stage, you may note when you ask them to do something, the response is, what do I get for doing it? It is also why reward charts are the optimal way to reinforce good behavior in this stage. Next up comes the conventional level, which houses stages 3 and 4. In this level, morality is tied to personal and societal relationship, and roles appropriateness is not really questioned. Stage 3, known as good boy, nice girl orientation, is where people want to be approved by others and therefore the actions they choose are those that avoid disapproval. Stage 4 is the law and order orientation, where roles are seen as the same for everyone and it is everyone's duty to uphold the laws and roles to maintain society. Most members of society reside in this stage. The last level is post-conventional, and it is where people's sense of morality becomes more abstract. They know that there's more to rules than just black and white. People at this level may think certain laws are unjust, and they may not obey laws which violate their own principles. Stage 5 in this level is the social contract orientation. People who have progressed to this level may view certain laws which aren't helping the general welfare as needing to be changed. Democratic government is based on this stage. The last stage, stage 6, is one which few people reach. It is known as the universal ethical principle orientation, where people focus on equality, dignity, or respect, and people in this stage choose actions because they are morally right, and they are willing to act in defense of these principles. People progress through these stages in a linear fashion, though that is not to say for some decisions they may act as a stage 5 while for others as a stage 4. Now there are several issues with how these stages were developed. One of the biggest is that the original sample was very biased. The study results were based on a small group of boys from one American city. No girls were included, nor were minorities represented. And thus, some scientists, including a research assistant of Kohlberg, Carol Gilligan, states that these stages cannot be extrapolated along all populations. Also, these stages were based on a Western sense of morality. Another issue is that the design of the experiment was poor because it focused on a cross-section of children, rather than following each child as they grew to see how their morality developed. Lastly, the dilemmas were hypothetical in that they weren't really happening to the person being asked, and the validity of the results come in question as an individual's actual response may be different. There have been additional studies by other scientists to evaluate if the above critiques truly impacted the final results of Kohlberg's moral development stages. For those who would like to learn more about Kohlberg's theory, I will have links on my website. Sports and Entertainment 
Popular Nepal, Bagchal, a type of board game, translates to English as Tiger Moving Game or Move the Tigers, is a two-player game that is categorized as a hunt or chase game. Known as the National Game of Nepal, it is still played today. Some believe the game originated in the Himalayas among herdsmen, while others think it came from further south in India. The goal of the game depends on if you're playing as the goat or as the tiger. For the tiger, the goal is to capture five goats on the board to win. The goats to win must surround the four tigers so none of them can make any valid move. The game is played on a grid of 25 points. I'll have a link on my website to a game board example, but basically you can think of it as four big squares connected in a 2x2 two two formation, and then each of the four squares are divided by horizontal, vertical, and diagonal lines. To play the game, you first must choose who will play as the goats and who will play as the tiger. The goats are represented on the game board by either goat-shaped pieces or by clear pieces. The tigers are represented by tiger-shaped pieces or dark pieces. To start the game, the four tigers are placed on each corner of the board, while the goats start off on the side of the game board. The first move is always by the goats. The goats' moves can be think of as divided into two phases. In the first phase, the player starts the game by placing a goat on the board with each turn. Only when all 20 goats are on the board can a player start moving goats from their original position by following the straight lines on the game board. The tigers, on the other hand, can perform two types of movements during their turn. The first movement is moving along the straight lines between two adjacent junctions. The second movement is by jumping over a goat, kind of like in checkers, but only one goat can be jumped over or captured per turn. Once a winner has been determined, the players then switch their game pieces, and to win a match, a player must win as both the goat and the tiger, otherwise the match ends in a draw. Game boards for this game are still handcrafted in Nepal today, and are typically created by covering a wooden frame with a thin sheet of brass. The brass is etched with the game board and then decorated. A compartment within the frame holds the pieces, typically small brass tigers and goats. But you do not need an official game board to play this game, as it is easy enough to create your own. So if you would like to give this game a try with your friends and family at home or around the campfire, I will have links to the game board and rules on my website. Science and Technology with over 25 Nobel Prizes, crystallography has had a huge impact in many different areas of science. What may not be widely known outside of science, though, is that crystallography, a science in its own right, is the study of the atomic structure of crystalline solids. The word gets its root from the ancient Greek word krystalos, which means ice in rock crystal, and was used to represent the mineral quartz in ancient times. Initially, crystallography was established to denote the study of the external appearance of crystals, and it wasn't until the development of X-ray crystallography that the science moved towards focusing on the internal structure of crystals. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves yet. First, what are crystals? The definition of crystals in scientific terms is a little bit different depending on who you ask. 
The historical definition of crystal is a solid with well-defined faces, while the crystallographic definition is a material with a regular repeating structural motif known as a unit cell. Lastly, the stricter definition is a material that gives a diffraction pattern with sharp peaks. The ancient Sumerians, all the way back in the 4th millennium BC, recorded the first historical reference for crystal use, but it wasn't until the 17th and 18th century when crystallography started making its way into the forefront of science. The first hypothesis on the inner structure of crystals started when Johannes Kepler, the same man who helped determine that planets in our solar system rotate around the sun in a heliocentric pattern, also noted that snowflakes had perfect six-corner symmetry back in 1611. An 18th century priest by the name of René Just Hoy then laid the foundation for modern crystallography by studying the outward structure of crystals from which he created models. It wasn't until the creation of x-rays and the birth of x-ray crystallography, though, that the science really took off. A German physics professor by the name of Max von Lau initially used x-rays on crystals in an attempt to determine if x-rays were particles or waves, and in doing this, demonstrated x-ray diffraction through crystals and won the Nobel Prize for his work. A father and son duo, William and Lawrence Bragg, realized the potential of von Lau's work and used it to develop x-ray photographs of crystals, which ended up revealing the arrangement of the crystal's atoms. Thus, with these photographs, scientists were now able to create 3D models of the atomic structure of different crystals including the first crystal structure to be solved, sodium chloride or common table salt. The Braggs also won the Nobel Prize for their work in X-ray crystallography. Now a woman by the name of Dorothy Crawfoot Hodgkin, who was a research student of William Bragg, would go on to become one of the most important crystallographers of the 20th century and would also become the first British woman to win a Nobel Prize in science for her work in solving the structures of penicillin, which allowed a synthetic penicillin to be made, as well as the structures of insulin and vitamin B12. Another important woman in crystallography was Rosalind Franklin, who took the X-ray photograph that was instrumental in Watson and Crick's discovery of the DNA structure, a double helix, though she was not included in the Nobel Prize winnings. We have learned so much from the field of crystallography that I could have a whole podcast on just this topic alone. And these things that we have learned include the structure of hemoglobin, which gave us an understanding of sickle cell anemia, the nature of atomic bonding, and the biological structures of enzymes, proteins, and viruses. But there is still a lot to learn, especially with the recent development of cryogenic electron microscopy, which could revolutionize the field, replacing the X-ray crystallography. For those who would like to learn more about the careers available in crystallography, as well as just the basic science behind it, you can visit my website for links. Geography and World Culture In past podcasts, we've learned about Cameroonian cuisine and Serbian cuisine. Today, we are going to continue along this pathway and take a trip to Hungary to learn about some of its unique dishes and the history behind Hungary's evolution in food. 
As usual, I apologize for any mispronunciations of these foods, but I will do my best. Like many countries in Central Europe, Hungarian cuisine is a fusion of Eastern and Western traditions. Its story starts all the way back in the 9th century, when seven Magyar tribes under Prince Arpad arrived and conquered the area that would become modern-day Hungary back in 896. The Magyar tribes were nomadic, herding their livestock on the move, and thus many of their dishes were made in large cast iron kettles, using meats, fish, seasonal vegetables, wild fruits, honey, and dairy products. Goulash, one of Hungary's most traditional dishes, arose from these people. Goulash, meaning herdsman soup in Hungary, is best made in a kettle over an open fire. Each region of Hungary has its own version, but the basic goulash recipe includes beef, carrot, potatoes, spices, and paprika. The first Hungarian ruler, King Stephen, married Gisela, a Bavarian who brought German cooking to the area, which really started the spread in the 10th century. In the 15th century, under King Matthias's rule, Italian cuisine made its way into the country through his second wife, Beatrix. New ingredients were incorporated into the cuisine, including chestnuts, garlic, saffron, onion, pasta, and cheese. Soon after, the Ottoman Empire occupied Hungary in the 16th and 17th century. The biggest item they incorporated into Hungarian cuisine was paprika. Hungarian paprika is an orange-colored ground spice made from dry bell pepper or sweet pepper. Hungary is one of the leading producers of paprika in the world, and Kolokza, Hungary even has a museum dedicated to the spice. The Ottomans also introduced rice, tomatoes, and stuffed and wrapped dishes. Around the same time, the Austrian Empire was also influencing Hungarian cuisine, including the adoption of maize and potatoes into their diet, and even more importantly, pastry making, such as cakes and torts. So what are some of these famous Hungarian dishes apart from goulash? Longos, from the word for flame, is a popular dish among Hungarians and consists of deep-fried flatbread eaten with a variety of toppings. Porkolt and paprikas are stews that were eaten as early as 1780. Porkolt is a meat stew with paprika and other vegetables, which is typically eaten with noketli, which are tiny egg noodles. Tolta kaposta are stuffed cabbage leaves, which are filled with pork mince and mixed rice and then flavored with paprika and pepper. Once you've had your fill of these savory dishes, it's time to try your hand at some of Hungary's most famous desserts. First up is Somloy Galuska, known as Hungary's favorite cake. It was first envisioned by head waiter Karoli Goloritz at one of Hungary's most famous restaurants, Gundel Restaurant in Budapest in 1950. The cake is made from sponge cake, layered with chocolate cream, walnut kernel, and rum with whipped cream on top. The original recipe is kept secret, so when made elsewhere, it may vary a little bit. Another famous dessert is called Dobos Tort, created by Joseph Dobos, who introduced this cake in 1885 at the National General Exhibition of Budapest. It is made from sponge cake layered with chocolate buttercream and then topped with caramel. Lastly, Kurtos Kalox 
is a unique type of bread which is baked rotisserie style over charcoal and is also known as chimney cake. It is a sweet spiral cylinder bread made with sweet yeast dough and coated with a sweet caramelized coating. Cinnamon, cocoa, coconut, or chopped walnuts can be added on top of this sweet dessert. Hungary has a unique and varied cuisine, and it is worth looking up some of these recipes and trying them out in the comfort of your own home. Today's random topic. If you ever happen to be wondering around Burnaby, Canada, and it's a nice sunny warm day, and you're looking for something outdoorsy to do, Look no further than Robert Burnaby Park. Before we talk about all the park has to offer to those who love spending time outdoors, let's spend a little time on the person the park was named for, Robert Burnaby. Robert Burnaby was born in Woodsthorpe, Leicester on November 30th, 1828 to Reverend Thomas Burnaby and Sarah Mears. As an adult, he worked in London for the civil service where he was fortunate enough to meet Sir Edward Bulwer-Lytton. Bulwer-Lytton was so impressed by Robert Burnaby, he would give Burnaby a strong recommendation to Richard Clement Moody, the commander of the Royal Engineers at New Westminster. Burnaby first met Mr. Moody on board the Asia, which he had boarded with plans to be a merchant in Canada. Per RoyalEngineers.ca, Colonel Moody's wife described Robert Burnaby as follows in the book Letters of Mary S. Moody. There's such a nice man with us, a Mr. Burnaby. His brother is in the engineers. He is going out as a merchant. He is so gentlemanly and pleasant and amiable and good. He is very kind to the children too. She would later describe his hiring by Mr. Moody as well, stating that, Richard has got Mr. Burnaby now as his private secretary, which I trust will be a great comfort to him, as he had no help before, and the letters of all kinds were innumerable. Burnaby would contribute to the planning of the settlements of Queensborough, Hope, and Yale. Moody was happy with his work and would name Burnaby Lake after him. Along with his work alongside Mr. Moody, he was elected to be a member of the Legislative Assembly of Vancouver Island and served for five years. He helped found the Victoria Chamber of Commerce and was the president of the Amateur Dramatic Association of Victoria. He was also active in the Freemasonry, being a key figure in its development in British Columbia. He helped found the first lodge in what is now British Columbia and was elected its first postmaster. He would then head the District Grand Lodge for British Columbia, which formed in 1868 under the Grand Lodge of England. On October 21, 1871, the new Grand Lodge of British Columbia was created. In 1874, due to his failing health, he boarded the Hudson Bay's company ship Lady Lampson to return to England. He died in 1878 in Woodthrope, Leicester. His name, though, lives on in Canada. He was such an important figure to British Columbia that in 1892, a new municipality was named Burnaby, as is the park that we are here to talk about today, Robert Burnaby Park. Robert Burnaby Park, located off Edmonds and 4th Street in East Burnaby, is a large public park consisting of an extensive trail system, three tennis courts, a swimming pool, 
a 10-hole disc golf course in an off-leash zone in the North End. Ramsey Creek winds its way through the park as well. Located entirely on a hill, the park was created during the Great Depression as a public works project. While a little bit of noise from highway traffic seeps its way onto the lower trails in the north end of the park, the rest of the trails are in a forest consisting of hemlock, cedar, and Douglas fir trees and are very peaceful. Picnic tables are located at two different areas of the park and the swimming pool is open between the end of May and beginning of September. For families with children, there are playgrounds for kids with multiple slides within the park. At various points, there are beautiful views to the north of Montecito, Cathedral Mountain, Mount Seymour, and the Lions. Due to its picturesque surroundings, some TV shows and movies have been filmed in the park as well, including The Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Percy Jackson, Sea of Monsters, and Episode 108 of Battlestar Galactica. If you ever find yourself in Burnaby, Canada and are looking for a quiet place to pass the time, Robert Burnaby Park may be exactly what you're looking for. And that concludes this episode of Trivial Knowledge. A little bit about a whole lot. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you were able to take away some interesting facts that were new to you and that you can share with friends and family or at your local trivia night. If you would like to learn more about topics that you enjoyed today, you'll be able to access links to more in-depth articles on my show notes blog post on my website, www.trivialknowledgepodcast.com. If you have questions or would like to leave comments about today's episode, please email me at trivialknowledge5 at gmail.com or contact me via social media links on my website. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with your family and friends. I look forward to our new adventures next week when we will learn about one of the biggest dinosaurs to roam the earth and much, much more. I will end this episode with a quote from Ronald E. Osborne. Unless you try to do something beyond what you have already mastered, you will never grow. Join me next week to learn a little bit more about the whole lot.